acknowledge something. And, you know, it might be like someone will stand up and say, you know, I'm in need of prayer for whatever it is. And we don't ask people like questions about what it is, but they just want to acknowledge that it's a reality by standing up. And the people around them might put their hand on their shoulder, you know, nothing like creepy, but just like a hand, like you're not alone, we're with you, we're praying for you. Now I want you to imagine a scenario in which you know someone at our church, maybe you're on the same, your kids are on the same soccer team, you have the same class with them, you work in the same, you know, business as them, you've seen them at the, you know, you're getting coffee or your kid, you know, fell off of our teeter-totter together or whatever it is out there, and you guys bonded in some capacity or another, and you see that one person stand up, acknowledging there's some brokenness in their life that, you're, that the church is going to pray for them and be a part of their, their life or whatever it might be in some capacity. You acknowledge at that moment, I know that person, and I can participate in praying for that person. They're not going to be as alone as they might even think. That I'm more in it with them than not. Now, if that person is on a different side of the room than you, you don't know it. You don't get to say, I recognize that person. Our lives intersect, and I can't participate in that with them. I can't ask them later on. I can't come up to them afterwards when our kids are, you know, playing outside or I, I, when we're meeting. I don't get to put a hand on their back and go, hey, I saw you stand up, man. I'm, I'm with you in this. You don't get any of that. You don't get any of that experience. We were at a, um, well, I'd say this way. Church is a communal experience. You know, if you just wanted to listen to really great music and listen to a speech, I mean, it is kind of a bizarre thing that we do, right? You you get your kids up early, you show up, you try to have breakfast as fast as you can, unless you're room two where you get served breakfast. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, but you try to get everybody ready, you show up and you listen to music and you hear a guy give a speech for 40 minutes. You know, like, that's a weird thing that you do. We all, and we do this, right? And if that's all that you wanted, you could listen to a CD and you could listen to the entire experience online. But you know there's some value about being here together. Worship is intended to be communal. And even those of you who are okay with the wall, there's something about the community that's busted up with the wall being here. Because it's not fully communal. This past week I was in a staff meeting at, our, um, at, our, at the Irvine campus. All five campuses are together and all of us are in one room. We're all meeting together. And it's one of those conference rooms, you know, you've seen them maybe at like a hotel conference room or whatever where there's like that, it's not fabric, but it's like a sound abating kind of wall that they accordions into the back of the room and you can, you know what I'm talking about, where you pull it all together on a track like that. And there's one of those in the room. And I really, I was telling the staff, I was actually, because I was addressing this whole staff, I was like, if this was my meeting, I'd love to pull that thing about three quarters of the way down and just see what people did. Because I guarantee you what would happen, as soon as people walked in, they'd immediately try to be figuring out how to solve that problem. Like, hey, are we meeting in both these rooms? Well, let's push that wall. But they would just, they would react that way because it makes no sense. So you might be okay with the wall, but that's, you just become crazy slowly over time. Because a person who walks in and sees a wall that can be adjusted goes, we should do something about that because it doesn't make any sense, because we can't participate together in it. Now, um, some of you have asked some questions. I want to address some of those right here. What about all the other church expenses? Can we afford this project? Now, you have to understand the way the church budgets work. One is that there is a general operating budget, which turns the lights on, pays our rent, does all that kind of stuff. That's, that's a general operating budget, pays the salaries, that. Then there is an, an offering that we take uh, uh, that's for the outreach, for people that are in the margins of society. That's, you know, we do that every so often. There's an outreach. You can look even on push pay like we showed on the screen. You can look online. There's three options. There's general offering. There's outreach, which is above and beyond what you would ordinarily give to the poor. And then there is another one that's to this project, which means this, this project isn't coming out of the usual. It's not like we're choosing between having kids ministry and removing the wall. Like, well, we decided no more kids. We're just going to get rid of that wall, Okay. <laughs> Understand what I'm saying? So there's, there are three different things. So if it's only what you give above and beyond determines this project. Understand? 
Okay, next question. I can't go into it too much. Why don't we just give all this money to the poor? Great question. There's a lot of answers to this question. A lot of people have asked this question. Why can't we just pool all this money and give it to the poor? And, and as quickly as I can answer it, I'll just do it this way. You have to imagine way back, this is, the Mariner's Mission Viejo doesn't exist without a Mariner's Irvine, which was previously a Mariner's Newport Beach, which was previously a tiny little gathering of people in a Bible study in a little home. Meaning that the expansion of campuses and the expansion of work to the poor together is necessitated on the growth of the church community and the health of that church community. So as the church expands, our capacity to give and be a part of a responsible community to the poor, to be in the community for the community, as it's part of those two things go together and they're not mutually exclusive. We're not choosing between adjusting the room and giving to the poor. Like, well, we were going to give to the poor. We decided instead that we're going to do it. That's not what it is. They're two totally different things. The church begins to expand and so does its impact in the community. If people don't give to the mission of the church, just the local, you know, our own thing, it's impossible for us to continue to outreach further into the community as we'd like to do. If there's not that, we don't have a thousand people last June going into the community, which we're going to have another one of those this coming June too. Tentative date, you guys can write this down, June 14th will be our next serve day. But that's like, we don't have that if the church doesn't accommodate the people that are here or coming here. Does that make sense? Okay, there's more to that story, but it's hard to kind of get into right now. Why don't we do some kids construction, like a new playground or a fence? I got a lot of that about, you know, like, why can't we put a real fence instead of that plastic one out there? Okay, here's the deal. A, we can't have a permanent playground because the, there's, there's some ramific- legal ramifications to having an attractive, literally, it's called like an attractive distraction or something like that, right next to an intersection with all these crosswalks. You can't do it quite like this. There's just, this is not set up for that with this industrial area. You can't have a big, attra- so kids could be, you know, coming out of the doctor's office and running across the street into our playground. We can't do that. Secondly, we can't have a huge, like, regular fence because the fire department needs to be able to access the building. So those, those fences, in the event of a fire, just lift right out. They just pop right out so that people, so the fire department could get in here. So that's, I've been getting those three questions a lot. Again, we're not choosing between two things. In fact, one, uh, this past week, I met with a guy, and I said, I asked him if he wanted to be a part of the, this impossible project to build down, to take down this wall. And he said, yes, I, I'm so excited about that. I really want to do that. And he goes, there's another thing I want to do. He goes, I also believe in, in junior high and high school camps. I want to I sponsor camps. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I just, God has been so good to me, and I want to take, I want to do that for the junior high and high school kids. I mean, I go, you know how much camp costs? He goes, of course I know. I believe in it so much, and I want to see this happen. And I'm like, uh, well, I just want you to say it one more time, you know, because I used to be a high school pastor. It's like, really? And he goes, yeah, just, you know, you, know, you, you will just charge them enough to cover a few things, but let me cover. I'm like, oh my gosh. The point is this generosity begets generosity. We are not choosing between being generous in one area at the expense of another. We are choosing generosity and we're choosing that God would enable people to become more generous today than they were yesterday. That is what this is about. Look, our church, as you've heard us say before, Mariner's Church is in the community for the community. We certainly want to make sure that we're continuing to aim ourselves at the community that is not us. We'll talk about that in a second. But part of what we have to do is when people decide to make this church their home, we don't want them to have to overcome our absurd craziness, which is, oh yeah, there's a wall there, but we're okay with it. And yes, there might be reasons for people to be caring for each other on either sides of the wall that they would never know otherwise, but we don't care. That doesn't cut it. There's just, there's, we talk about, the, the number one thing people love about our church, when they tell me at the door or that I meet them, they're like, hey, I've been coming for three months or three weeks or whatever it is. I have to tell you, what I love the most is the people here. 
I love the community. It's such a genuine group of people. People are responding. with so I feel welcome here. I feel like whatever I got going on in my life, I'm allowed to bring it in here. And that community is divided every single week. We have to do something about that. Okay? Now, here's the thing. I want you to catch this too. The church is for you. It is for you. We can't be in the community for the community. And if you are part of the community, we can't, we're not like we're against you, right? The church is for you. It really is for you. It is for you. The church is also through you. The work that you do. My, my favorite thing in the world, so my, I mean, there's like, I got, there's like four or five favorite things about our church. But I got to tell you, one of the highlights for me is when I see people, like our, whether our prayer team, our elder team, whatever else it might be, who are people who are suffering in their own regard, whatever it might be, through sickness, through some own, their own kids suffering, whatever else it is, and I watch them praying for other people. That I get to see the church, God himself working through people who are otherwise in need, helping people who are in need. And I go, that, you know, the church is through, it is for you, and it is through you. You are the church. I mean, the church is made up of the people, not the building. It's the people who follow Jesus. The church is through you. And lastly this, the church is not about you. The church is for you. The church is through you, but it is not about you. In other words, the church is about Jesus. And to put it in even, to make it even clearer, the church is, if the church is about Jesus, then it's also about the thing that Jesus was about the most, which is about them, the other people. The people who are not with us or in us yet, those people who, that's who Jesus was about. So when we talk about this, it's not, are you okay with the wall? It's, is the rest of the world who would come to visit and be a part of our church community, are they okay with it? Because the truth is, they're not. They look at us and go, you're crazy. How do you not see that? Because you let that be there. It's not about how we think about it. It's about how everybody else who would come be a part of our church community feels about it. That's what I want to talk to you about. That's, that's the whole thing. Now, the truth is, for a lot of us, as we think about this, I think there's actually a principle somewhere in here that I want us to capture, capture even for today as we talk today. about. We're actually going to have an actual Bible conversation here right now, too. Some of you are like, when are we going to do that, too? That's going to happen right now. But that same sentiment that we talk about, the wall, this, we're okay with this, actually invades our lives in a really shocking way. And I'm going to talk about that today in our series. It's called Pursuit of Happiness. Let's, just, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful that we have a place to worship in. We're grateful that we have a place to respond to you. Father, we know there is so much work that you're still doing in our midst. We believe, Father, that there is um, work that's not yet done. And Jesus, we know as people who have endured a number of things, that there are things in our life that are just not okay. There are things that have happened to us and things that maybe we've even done that are not okay. And yet you still love us and you still plan and work to restore us. And so we're so grateful for that, Jesus. Today, Father, as we consider your word, might you reveal in us some of those wounds that are in need of healing in us, and also, Jesus, the wounds that we may have caused that are in need of healing in other people. And so, Jesus, would you give us a sense of that in a moment of silence and stillness that we might seek for reconciliation and restoration, Jesus? Just for a few seconds, would you pause and consider those things? Father, we trust in your restoration. We trust in your power. And we believe, Jesus, that some things are simply not okay and need to be dealt with. 
And we trust those things to you today. In your name, amen. All right, really quick. Go ahead and take out your outline. I got a lot to get through that I really care about, and I don't know if I'm going to get through all of it, so I'm going to go pretty fast. We're in a series called The Pursuit of Happiness. This is a, a kind of a look, basically, as we consider what the pursuit of happiness means. If you look at the three inalienable, inalienable rights that are mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, you have life, liberty, and this one, the pursuit of happiness. And for people like us, we have this sense about happiness that it's an entitlement, that it's a right. And if you're with us uh, uh, last week, we had this conversation about, or a couple weeks ago, we had this conversation, Doug was with us last week, but it's a conversation about how the Bible has a word describing happiness. It's a word, Barak, which some of you laughed at last week or two weeks ago, but it is a word that means blessed or blessed, as you might have heard it said before. Now, as we talk about it, it means sort of this idea of being super grateful. It means having the sense of being able to talk about your condition in which you're beyond just thankful. You're like overwhelmed. And we had this sense that, that part of it, as we talked about it, the idea of being blessed is that there's a connectedness, connectedness and a favor by God. And we also said that this idea of being blessed is an outcome of something else. In other words, that's an indirect outcome. That we don't chase happiness, we chase something else, which we talked about is really a, a connectedness with God, that happiness or blessedness would result. And Jesus challenged, as we talked about it, everybody's understanding with how happiness works, because in, the, in that time, the way people understood happiness or blessedness is that if you were obedient, <clears throat> then God would bless you. And part of which is, you know, there's, there's a good case to be made about that, and particularly at Jesus' time, uh, uh, you know, of his ministry. But there's a problem with this, which is that when people start saying, the more rules I follow, the more, the more happy I become, there also tends to creep into human nature a sense that says, those who follow more rules are better than those who do not. And there's almost a sense of happiness that comes just from being one who is better at following rules than other people. And there's a problem in there that, that has to be addressed. And Jesus, as he was talking about the most righteous people in the land, people who are the most excellent at following these rules he called there's are called the pharisees and he talks about them to other people and he says something really really shocking he says this for i tell you that unless your righteousness meaning how good you are at this kind of stuff surpasses that of the pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of the he- kingdom of heaven meaning you don't get to participate in god's kingdom kind of life unless you're better than the most righteous people to which his audience would have gone oh my gosh are you crazy they're the most righteous people on the planet We can't possibly compete. Now, the only way this makes sense is if what Jesus is talking about is something a little bit or drastically different than what the Pharisees understood. Meaning that what Jesus wants for people isn't just the outward behavior of righteousness, of doing the right thing. What he wants for people is that their whole life would be lived with integrity. That there wouldn't need to be a a faking it kind of life, a Jesus people kind of faking it, and then a business people or a school kind of thing. That everything has wholeness. There's no need to live any way with any kind of mask. And this is where people were really kind of shocked by it. Now, the one thing, there's there's a number of things that can rob us of happiness, but there is one thing, as I was thinking about, there's just one thing that tends to destroy happiness. There's this one factor, this one thing how happiness dies for us in our lives and it's probably one of the most surprising things because it's not what you might imagine it's not tragedy how happiness dies it's not trial it's not bankruptcy it's not your team being eliminated from the march madness tournament it's something way different villanova fans but it's something different (laughs) how happiness dies is one word fine 
Not fine like fine, slam the door fine, and not fine like fine, not that. <laughs> fine like, well, fine, fine. I guess, never, I guess this is just the best as it gets, no matter, I guess this is as good as it could possibly be, so fine, fine. I've resigned myself to settle for things that shouldn't be there or are dangerous to me, and I just say, fine. All of us, there's a natural kind of gravity towards fine. All of us live our lives in some way or another at the temptation of this black hole, which is just simply to go, it doesn't really matter. It's just fine. Uh, this week I was in the bathroom, I was washing my hands, and I look, you know, we have these new lights in our, in our bathroom up there, which basically, cha- it looked like we put a coat of paint in there. They're like so bright in there, if you guys know. So we have these new light bulbs in there, which are energy efficient and awesome, and I'm, I'm in there and I'm washing my hands. I look up in the mirror. And there are at least, I would say, a minimum of four to five hairs growing out of my ears. <laughs> and they're not like little. They're not like tiny. Everybody obviously have a little bit of like fur kind of. It was like, I mean, I'm not kidding. They're at least an inch long. Now, I'm looking at my ears and going, how did they, how did I miss those things? They don't grow overnight. I mean, it takes a little while for hair to grow. And somehow they went from tiny to a little bit bigger to that, you're like a beast. There's, there's a hideous troll nature to your ears now. And you have to deal with those things right now. So I'm in the bathroom like, oh gosh, this is horrible. Ah, there's more. And they're an inch long. And I'm thinking to myself, there, there's going to be a time in my life where I notice that I have ear hairs that are maybe longer and darker and curlier. And I'm going to say to myself, doesn't matter, it's fine. And everybody else, my grandkids will look at me and go, ugh. My granddaughters will be like, can I put like a little bow in there or something? And I... <laughs> there are some things that we manage to tolerate in which we have, this, we have to ask the question, what if, God needed, what if God intended your life to be so much more than just fine? Because I can't say looking, well, they're kind of blonde hair and it's not, it's like, it's fine. No, it's not fine. And I'm kind of mad at Amanda for not loving me enough to tell me these things. Like, you know, like, this isn't fine, Jeff. This, is, this isn't okay. These are things that are not fine we live our lives so often assuming that fine is as good as it gets and i think for a lot of us as we consider what that means the idea of as good as it gets means maybe our understanding of good even is probably at kind of at odds with what god intends there's a there's a historical biblical precedent for this idea that god maybe wants more for us than just fine but you can experience you can see the gravity throughout god's story of people who are willing to settle for fine, for good enough, for it's not that big a deal. If you look at the story of God's people coming out of, uh, out of captivity in Egypt, there's 400 years of slavery. So this means they're being owned by other people, being uh, oppressed in so many ways. They're doing the will of people that they did not choose to follow. They, they've been crying out for generations, just to give me a sense of 400 years. This means there's nobody with any living memory of freedom. Just to put this in perspective, our country is not 400 years old. None of us talk about life in the colonies. Our, our ancestors talk. We don't, we don't pass those stories down. We have no memory, really, of what that is. Some of you, maybe you do, but you're, like, incredibly rare. But you just imagine 400 years. There's no recollection of freedom. There's only this experience of oppression. 
And they've been crying out to God forever. God rescues his people in dramatic ways. I don't have time to go into it. But he pulls them out of, out of Egypt with all kinds of plagues and all kinds of opportunity for the Pharaoh, the, you know, the richest person who all, handles all the wealth and power of the known world at that time. There's plenty of opportunities for him to let those people go. And finally he does. Through all this courageous stuff, God has, if you look in your Bible, you have Exodus chapter 14. God walks them through the Red Sea or the Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds. Walks them across the Red Sea. Then Moses and his sister sing this song in Exodus 15, and they get to Exodus 16, and this is what you see. No, this is the miraculous stuff they've seen happening. The Israelites said to them, meaning the leaders here, Moses and Miriam and, you know, Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us out into the desert to starve this this entire, entire assembly to death. Did you guys not see the water? And the walking and the Pharaoh's army kind of going down and the plagues. And we got this pillar of smoke which guides us by day and a pillar of fire by night. And you're, we're, we've just walked out and it's like, we'd rather go back. It was better there because it was fine. It was fine. We were fine. We were fine. There's something about this idea that is all, it's throughout all of us. It. It's in our own DNA. Some part of us just goes, it was fine. It was better there. It was fine it's not the first and last time that god's people do this there's if you even go to numbers chapter 11 you have this right here the rabble within them began to crave other food now the food they've been eating is manna manna is this miraculous food that god gives to the people who are wandering in the desert who thought there would be no food now god gives to them this food and these people start going we're kind of tired of the menu god thank you for the miracle we want something other than manna the rabble within them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Hey, all you can eat buffet. We just own you for the rest of your life. It's free. There's all kinds. Do they not understand the cost of that food? Evidently, there is an incredibly high cost to freedom, but maybe there's a higher cost to slavery and these people are looking at moses and going we're tired of the food we remember how good the food. we were yes we were under oppression yes they whipped us and yes they made us do things they didn't want to yes we had to build their idol we had to build temples to their idols and all that stuff blah 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 but the food was fantastic <laughs> it was free they just threw that in no because it was fine they go through greater detail check this out we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers. Who could beat those? The Egyptian cucumbers. The melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. A delicious. Every meal was delicious. But now we've lost our appetite. We've never seen anything but this manna. Manna, manna, manna. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? I put it in your notes. You can look at it later. I don't have time to go through it now. But Moses literally says, God, kill me now. You can look at the, it literally is like, God, if this is how you're going to treat, if this is how these people are going to treat me, I can't bear it. Kill me now. I can't, I have, I, I have worked too hard. This is way too hard. They're going to complain about this. Just kill me. I can't take it any longer. You see, there's a sense within us that says, if I could just go back to the way things were, it'd be fine. I'm fine with fine. And God wants so much more for you than simply fine. You know, there's a familiarity with fine. We get used to fine. We kind of begin to sort of live with it and kind of assume that's the way things have to go, that it's just fine. 
And there is something, people, uh, I was talking to someone who is in recovery, and they said that, you know, one of the things that's so hard for people who are in recovery is that the idea of be, becoming something else, free of addiction, is so much scarier than even the evil that they recognize in the repetitive, repetitiveness and the way in which addiction owns them. That something new, something different, is, even if it's better, and the promise of it is better, is scarier than the familiarity of fine. Well, it's evil, but it's fine. It's just, I know it, and it's fine. Remember, fine is how happiness dies. Fine is the way in which things start to unwind for us. God wants something bigger for you and for me than merely fine. Now, there is no clearer place. There's no, it's this, this idea is no clearer for us than when we start talking about relationships. Yes, it's true in the conditions of our life. Yes, in our own sort of internal orientation toward God. But the way it gets manifest in the most dramatic sense is when we start talking about other people in our lives and going, it's fine. This is where damage is really done. The idea of a fullness, a blessed kind of life, a blessed kind of life gets undone. We start looking at other people or our own condition of our own relationships and we just go, it's, it's fine. We've managed to deal with this for enough time. You know, if you were with us last week, as Doug talked about divorce and adultery and you know, that weekend, a lot of our, almost our entire staff went away on a, on a marriage retreat. One day, it was awesome. And so I'm gonna, my goal, by the way, next year is to have all of you who are married to go on it next year. Um, it'll be awesome. But what you get is, when you get to this kind of conversation, it's not indicting, there's no like humiliation. It wasn't like everybody stand up and tell the thing that's in the way of your marriage with everybody. It's like, it, was, it just was like, you get this sense that there are things in our own relationships. Marriage is the easiest one for me. It's the most intimate one I have, obviously. But we start to go, there are things that we've kind of let go a little bit, that we've been fine with, that God doesn't intend for us to be fine. But there are bigger things even than that. And Jesus says these things in the most dramatic way. The way he talks about this kind of thing is incredibly dramatic. And I want you to check this out. This is in Matthew chapter 5, where he talks about relationships and begins to challenge the notion of fine. Let's look at how far he pushes this. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Now you just have to know, really quick, I'm going to go through this kind of quick. This isn't a justification for revenge that the, that the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament has. He's quoting the, the Hebrew Bible here. It isn't a justification for revenge. It's a limitation on how far you can take it. That's what that is. So people aren't looking at, yay, we can have revenge. They're looking at it like you can't go any further than just what has been taken from you. So Jesus is saying, you've heard this whole thing about revenge or about getting back what's yours. And you know the limitation on it is just only what they took from you. It's not more. There's no punitive damages. There's no additional lawsuits. It's just whatever they took. You just get, if they took your eye, you take their eye more. That's the metaphor for whatever else there is. It's not intended to be a justification for revenge. Okay? Verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Very quickly. the, The expression here is, notice that it says right cheek. The expression is that someone would probably have been using their right hand to slap a person. Now, imagine just for a moment how the only way that's physically possible. It's not this. It's this. It's a reverse backhanded slap, which being described here isn't abuse necessarily. It is. But what's being more described here is humiliation. It's public humiliation. So when someone is reversed, backhanded slapped, that's not not how you would attack someone to abuse them. I mean, that's just not practical. You wouldn't walk up and be like, I'm so angry. I mean, that doesn't make, right? You would do it to humiliate them. How dare you? I hope everybody right here sees me slapping you in this way that you might be publicly humiliated. That's what's being addressed here by Jesus. 
And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. This doesn't translate super great into English. Basically, it's, it's, it's the implication here is you'd be completely naked. Okay. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Roman soldiers could, take, could commandeer any person and say, you have to carry my gear up, up to about 80 pounds. You have to carry it a mile. So people were familiar with all these references that are happening here. And Jesus is saying, if a Roman soldier, which is the implication here, asks you to carry their gear, you carry it with them, not one mile, but two. Which people would have been like, that's insane, because they don't deserve it, right? Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you, okay? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Now you see here, what Jesus is beginning to do is push this further. He's not saying that everything that has happened to you is fine, but he begins to say something that's incredibly shocking. Because fine in the mind of the people would have been get, get what's yours at least and maybe get a little bit more. In our world, it's get a little bit more. Get as much as you can. In their world, it's, the limitation is you try to get back what's been taken from you. And Jesus starts talking and saying these things. Hey, you've heard it said, take these things. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Your neighbor is anybody who's in, the, in that mindset would have been a righteous person. Anybody who's your enemy is someone who's unrighteous or has been unrighteous to you, who, who has shamed you or your people group. And now he keeps saying all these things. No, 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 love them. Go a little further. Pray for those who persecute you. Do all these things that you might be children of your father what marks you as someone who's a father of your children in heaven is something in which you say some things have not been fine but i'm not going to let that dictate my relationships if you love those who love you what reward will you get are not even the tax collectors doing that and if you greet only your own people what are you doing more than the than the others do not even pagans do that in other words it's not unique if all you do is say the people i care about and know are the people i'm gonna care about and know and everybody else, it doesn't matter. I don't care what happens to them. That's not okay, which Jesus keeps saying to his followers. And they keep going, wait, wait, wait. There's some people we're supposed to not love, right? Like the Roman? No, you just started talking about us. Carry- There's- wait a second, Jesus. He pushes this so far out. And now the church, there's top- some of you probably have received a message at some point or another from a church or whatever. Maybe you grew up in the church and you, un- you somehow understood that what this means is I'm supposed to be a doormat. And I'm supposed to allow people to abuse me. And that's what this is about. Let me tell you that's not what this is about. What's being talked about here is the public humiliation of people who seek to justify their own status in the public opinion. If you are backhanded slapped, you better figure out how to restore your honor pretty darn quick. If someone demands something of you of putting you in a position of a servant, you better figure out how to identify that you're not a servant. You're better than them. You're not that. Because the public opinion will have, it's about you trying to save face. It's not justification for abuse. It's about something way different than that. Now listen, this is really important. Some things, some things can never be fine. Some things can never be fine. They're just not fine. I want you to remember this because it's going to come up again in a second. You're going you're to forget this and I want you to hear it again. Some things are not, there are things that have been done to you that are not, no matter how much time has gone, that are not fine. The fact that you've been able to cope with those things and move on with your life, way to go. They're not fine. They're not fine. 
And there have been things that you have done that no matter how much time has gone by, that they are not fine either. You might have been abused or neglected. You might have been treated like a doormat. You might have treated other people like a doormat. You might have said or done or acted in a way that is not fine. And yet Jesus keeps calling us to something bigger than simply being okay with stuff. Remember, the church, the church is full of broken people. We say all the time, people will quote it back to me, which I love, they quote, this is a group of people who are trying to follow Jesus as best as we know how. None of us has it all together. All of us, not a single person in this room has all the answers to every question. We are people who have been damaged. We are people who are broken, who are being restored. The church is full of broken people, broken by people. The greatest wounds in our life aren't the time where you fell out of a tree and broke your wrist. They're the wounds that we suffer at the hands of other people. And they're not, those wounds aren't fine. Those wounds hurt, and they last, and they sting. And we try to make them fine, but God wants to do something so much greater than He wants to restore us to a place that's even better than that. Now, I'm going to race through this next passage of Scripture. I've got to kind of hustle a little bit. I want you to remember as you read this story, that line. Some things are not fine. I want you to hear this, and I want it to be in your, it's just not okay to simply say to people, it's fine now, because it's been a long, it's not fine. Some of you, maybe that's the only thing you needed today to hear was that the things that have happened to you are not fine. And maybe as you come forward later for prayer, if that's something you want to just go, I need people to identify that there's been some wounds and I've just let them kind of fester. And they're actually informing the way that I live to this day, even though I deny it. And maybe for others of you, there's a part of you that goes, I've done some things and they're not fine. I don't have to confess them out loud to anybody. But I need to acknowledge that they're not fine. That I've made some mistakes. Now I'm going to read this story. Because the, the thing that people are asking in Jesus' mind as they hear him talk about this stuff is, wow, that's really bold stuff. Prove it. Prove that you actually mean what you're saying. Prove this is actually the truth. Prove that you want us to live this out. Demonstrate this reality to us, Jesus, because it's pretty big that you're saying it, so prove it. Prove it. A couple chapters later in Matthew 8, you have this story of uh, um, a centurion, which I'll explain in a second. And just check out the story here. When Jesus, is Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When Jesus had entered and entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Now, the reason why he asked this question is because the centurion is a person, a Roman soldier who has been given a particular kind of authority over a hundred people. Thus the name centurion, like century. He has a hundred soldiers under his power. The only way someone becomes a centurion is if they embody all of that Rome is as a Roman soldier. Roman soldiers aren't known for their compassion and kindness. They're not known for raising puppies, and you know, they're, that's not what they do. These are people who are known for extortion and power. They're known for intimidation. They're known for scaring people. This is, the centurion is the representation of the oppressive people of the Roman Empire over the Jewish people. So a centurion comes to Jesus and goes, I got a sick servant. Can you help me heal him? Jesus looks at the crowd and says, should I help him? Because what you expect Jesus to say is, really, centurion? How long has it been that you've been abusing my people and oppressing them? I think you got what you deserved. Eye for an eye, right? You got what you deserved. We're all fine with that. You're fine and I'm fine. Everybody's fine. 
The crowd certainly did not have an answer because what they wanted to say is, good riddance, bummer for you, sorry. He looks at the crowd and says, what should I do? Verse 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just as I say the word, and my ser- but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Verse 9, for I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I tell this one go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. What's being acknowledged here by the centurion is, Jesus, you have power and authority I do not have, and I don't deserve you to do these things, because I am the oppressor, but I have nowhere else to go. Jesus looks at the crowd going, what should I do? Jesus was amazed. Verse 13, then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. There's something about relationships that Jesus is provoking in people that whatever has happened to them, whatever has happened to us because of them, we don't simply get to go, it's bygones be bygones, it's all just fine. He starts saying that what we ought to do in the most crazy and the most dangerous way is to say, I want to go be, I want to see things not just simply be fine, I want to see them restored to wholeness. It is the most courageous thing ever. Because what has happened to you and what has happened to us is not fine. What has happened, what we have caused other people is not fine. There is no fullness. There is no happiness if we hold on to just fine. What God intends to do is to work through the pain, to build us to restoration to where we could, if it were possible in so many ways, you get to see how this is tied with forgiveness as well. If we could in some way work towards a restoration and a wholeness, it isn't to justify what everybody else did, going, that's all fine that you did it, we're okay. It's to say, what you did was wrong and it hurt but I will not continue to live holding on to that for the rest of my life because if I do that, it becomes my own master. My bitterness can own me. I don't want that for my life. I want you to do something kind of courageous. I want you to say the words, what they did was not fine out loud in a second. Everybody in here has been wounded. So everybody's going to say, if you haven't, just pretend that you have been hurt sometime in your life. And I want you to say out loud, what they did was not fine. Okay? Prepare yourself, and you're going to say it out loud. Maybe for the first time in your life, you've never even said this. All right? So whatever it is, you're going to say it out loud. Count of three. One, two, three. Whatever they did wasn't fine. Good. We're going to say it one more time. One, two. Hang on. Good, good, good. You're good. Way to go. Some of you over to you, they had food. They had breakfast. They're a little more, the energy's a little higher. The count of three. One, two, three. Whatever they did was not fine. Good. Now, the, the power in this story is that the centurion is a person who has committed abuses. The implication, as everybody would have known in that first century, is that that person is a person who would have abused power because they could. Now, what I want you to say is this, whatever I did was not fine. There are things that you have done in your life that you have said, it doesn't matter anymore, it's fine. I need you to own this. On the count of three, it's a little harder. 
One, two, three. Whatever I did was not fine. Not everything that you've done was not fine. But there are things that we can identify that we go, they're not fine. They're not fine. The centurion is the wrongdoer. And the story, the story of real story of grace in this, in this account is about us who wound other people who are restored. To those who wound us, we say it's not fine. We need restoration and hope. We need to be connected in groups and people that can kind of come around us. It's not, it's not just okay that that happened. You know, some of you have a fear of counseling. I've told you guys before, my, you know, Amanda and I go to counseling periodically at different times in our marriage. You should do that too. You should get someone else who understands, uh, who, you know, has an understanding of Jesus and about you and relationships who can tell you there's some healing that needs to happen in your life. Those who wound us, it's not fine. To those we wound, we get to say what I did was not fine. I need to seek for, wherever it's, a, wherever it's possible, I need to seek for restoration and hope. Now, here's what I want to do. We're going to get a moment to respond in, in singing right now, just a second. What I want you to do is this. Some of you have been sitting on some stuff, this whole message. And as soon as I started talking about the idea of what I did... <laughs> wasn't fine you're like you knew exactly what it was now, this is going to be incredibly courageous what i want you to consider doing is i'm going to ask you to stand in a second for the thing that you, that you go i don't know how to get through this i don't i'm not going to say it out i'm not going to make anybody say it out loud to everybody else but i need people behind me who could be praying for me who know that i just i just want to know i'm not alone in trying to seek reconciliation and make things right if that's you and you go, man, I've been holding on to something and I've let it be there, something I did that I need to make right, then why don't you go ahead and stand up? No one's asking you what you did. It's the most courageous thing you could ever do is to say, I didn't do it right. Remember, this is a room full of broken people. Does anybody want to stand and receive prayer for that? Some folks right there, good. Right here. Standing up here. Okay. A few of us are standing, good. Some more folks over here. No public confession. I'm not giving you a microphone. Anybody else over here? Good. Thanks for your courage. Okay, around these people, with some of you who are around them, would you put a hand on their shoulder? Would you put a hand maybe on their hand? Would you come up close to wherever you could be around them? This is how the church ministers to people who are like us, who are broken people. And we're going to pray that God gives to them strength and wholeness and is capable of restoring. So would you just pray with me? For those of you who are around them, one of the things we do a tradition is that we just simply point our hand at those people. It's a way of participating in this prayer without necessarily being able to get up to reach them. So would you put your hand toward them? Let's pray. Jesus, as a body of people who follow you, we know that we are people who are plagued with mistakes and brokenness. Jesus, we long to see wholeness and restoration. Father, we confess that we have made mistakes that have caused other people pain, and we seek for your restoration and your wholeness. Jesus, would you give us the courage to do what needs to be done, to own those things, to identify them as not fine, and Father, to move through us in such a way that there is power and restoration and wholeness. Jesus, we don't want to settle for just fine. 
Father, we want to move toward a place of blessedness, of happiness even. Lord, it's the thing we imagine would be the most impossible, and yet, Jesus, you're continuing to work. And so, Father, in these people, would you give them power, the power of confession? Would you give them the power of honesty? Would you give them the power of your spirit to enable restoration to happen in a way that they never thought could happen? We pray your power be at work in this, in this moment and in this place. Would you bring healing and hope in ways we never could have thought we'd ever see? And so, Father, it's in your name we pray, in your powerful name we pray. Amen. Why don't we stand together and respond? And we'll sing. And then I'll close in a moment. And if you need prayer, there's people on the sides in the front to pray for you. Let's lean into the forgiveness that Jesus offers us this morning. I'm forgiven. Because you were forsaken, I'm accepted, you were condemned.